Our study this morning is continuing our look at 1 Peter. I'm going to pick up our reading today in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, and read through verse 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, and whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, thankful again that you're a God who has spoken, and that in your mercy you superintended the writing of it down and made it available to us so we have such free access to it. Beyond that, part of the ministry of your Holy Spirit is to illumine our hearts to the things you've said. And so in this time that we have together, we pray that that illumining of our heart would take place, that we would understand and what it is you've said and its implications and applications to our lives to get our thinking right, to get our actions aligned with what pleases you. Do that work in us, Lord. We know it's not always a comfortable work, but we know it's a needed one. Do that work, we pray. Give us alertness of mind in this day, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you remember, the fourth chapter of 1 Peter opened up by focusing in on the question of how do we now live, or how should we be living, as redeemed children of God? Put it this way. All people who have been saved, who have turned in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, resting in the gospel, have a before and an after to their life. There was a way you lived before. Now, there's supposed to be a way you live after the decision having been made for the gospel. And so the question that's being addressed in the opening part of the fourth chapter is, how will you choose to live after the decision to respond in repentance and faith to the gospel? So chapter 4 is not to the non-believer, it's to the believer. And it's challenging believers about that all-important question. And he says, listen, in the after of our life, after having turned to Christ, uh, in that after, you have to make a choice. And it really, it's just two different choices can be made, as we saw. We can choose as redeemed people now to live the after of our life under our own direction, under our own control. In other words, live it in a way like we lived the before of our life. Or we can make a decision as redeemed people to live the after in our life, after turning to Christ, for the will of God. That's how God wants us to live. That's, his, that's what he says, this is the choice I want you to make. 
But it wouldn't have been presented to us as a choice if it wasn't possible for believers in the after of having turned to Christ to have chosen to continue to follow the old way, follow the before orientation. Many believers, sadly, continue at times to approach their Christian life thinking they have the right to call the shots. Now, they may well have chosen to live a more moral and upright life, even have a religious dimension to it, or even a place where they acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ in their life. But for all intents and purposes, they continue to sit in the driver's seat. They control the nature of their relationship with God. And they do not, in the Romans 12, 1 sense, have present their body as a living sacrifice to the Lord, uh, which is the heart of real worship. They stay on the throne. They continue to control the wheel. And so the challenge in that opening part of the fourth chapter is this. Don't choose to live that way anymore. <laughs> that, that was an appropriate orientation to life, in a sense, to the before, to keep in charge of your own life. It's not appropriate in the after. After we turn to Christ, God has a different criteria to guide our life. He says, listen, let me be Lord, uh, not you anymore. Give up the steering wheel. Let me make those priority decisions within your life. And if we choose as a believer to live the after part of our life like the before part of our life, we squander our life. We have nothing to show for it. And, of course, that's the thread in those opening verses of the fourth chapter. Don't waste your life. Don't, don't squander whatever time you've got left. And you will squander it if it's lived anywhere short of having surrendered it to the Lord. Now, by the way, let me quickly add, you can squander it, but still even today turn and not squander what's left of it. So that's the wonderful thing about the Christian life. There's always today, no matter what yesterday was... There's always today, and we can begin to have at least a portion of it that's not squandered. I thank that, the Lord, that that's true, because otherwise all of us would throw our hands up in despair and say, well, what's the use anymore? I've squandered some of it. And God says, yeah, I know you did. Don't squander any more of it. <laughs> you know, let's make sure you're living strategically surrendered to me. We saw that the pathway to a squandered life could take those forms of being driven by the sensualities and the passions and the drunkenness and the orgies, the partying. But we also saw that it could also be driven by what is defined or shown in the English Standard Version, translates it at least this way, by lawless idolatry. Sometimes people in the after of their life, after having turned to Christ, pride themselves on having turned away from the first five of those things that characterized the before life, you know, the passions, the sensualities, and all of that stuff. But they haven't turned away from the sixth of the things, the lawless idolatry. Uh, lawless idolatry translates a Greek phrase, which means a worship without rules a privatized sort of spirituality. Uh, people think, as redeemed people, they're in some sort of negotiating position with God, where they can, with God, sort of, you know, negotiate it out. What can I do that will please you? Uh, and yet I can still sort of call the shots. Then they look for one of these sort of places where they s sort of pacify God, uh, you know. And God's response to that is, 
if you're still trying to call the shots in your life, you might just as well be living sensuality, passions, drunkenness, and orgies. Because it's equally displeasing to me. I don't care that you live a more religious, less sexually perverse life if you're living it under your own control. Because the only things acceptable to me is that you present your body as a living sacrifice. Be filled with the Spirit. Be growing. Uh, Satan does a pretty good job convincing us that if we've turned away from some of what was the Gentile way, <laughs> that God is at least saying, well, at least there's that. And God's saying, listen, I want you turning away from the lawless idolatry, a worship without rules, a privatized spirituality, which is kind of the catchphrase of our contemporary era. Privatized spirituality, where you define what that's about. You interpret in your own mind what's pleasing or not pleasing to God. When we try to negotiate with God in our life for something less than surrendered discipleship, we are guilty of lawless idolatry. I'll put it in that straight away. If you're negotiating with God, you're guilty of lawless idolatry. You have no negotiating position. I mean, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? God says, oh, there's one way that will please me. Surrender. Let me be Lord. Grow as a disciple. Draw on the enabling power of the Spirit. Yeah, that's, that's what it's about. He ended, as we looked at it, by telling us that if we make the right choice in the after part of our life to live as God's calling us to live, that's not going to make the people around us comfortable. The world is not going to be happy with that. Uh, they can't make sense of it, first of all, because you're a puzzle to them. Why aren't you being driven by what drives us? But more importantly, uh, they get frustrated when you don't continue to join with them in what they're doing. And... You make them feel guilty by the fact you don't. And in their guilt and frustration, then they focus maligning and opposition and rejection on your life. God lays it out. He says, hey, this is going to be the outcome. This will be the outcome. Well, today, starting in verse 7, building on that foundation, he talks about life priorities in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. He says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore. Remember, actually, the fourth chapter started off with that, therefore. And we talked about that, showing us that God's very interested in application of the word. He's not here just to give us doctrinal grasp. He is wanting to transform our lives. Can't be transformed without doctrinal grasp. But you can, you can have doctrinal grasp and not be transformed. God says, I want it applied in life, not just giving you the ability to answer right on a test. And so I'm, I'm interested in transformation and change. So the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, here's the application. Since that's true, these are the things that I want to be true. Our lifestyle choices in the after of our life, again, using that before and after picture, the lifestyle choices in the after of our life should be affected by the era we find ourselves in. And the era that we find ourselves in, according to 1 Peter, is we find ourselves in the era of the end of all things, which is the way it translates it here in the ESV. Now, brothers and sisters, understand that phraseology in, in the English translates a, a Greek combination of words that 
refers to the end of time, the end times in a synopsis sort of way. And in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament context, that terminology refers to two different things, related but different. The first thing it refers to is all of that history from the time of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross on our behalf. Because that marked the stage of the last times. Uh, For example, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Long ago and at various times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, the Old Testament era. But in these last days, this era, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. That's the first way in which that phrase is used and implied in the scripture. Everything from the cross and resurrection onward is the end times. Now, At times, the phrase end times, or the end of all things, is used to refer to a specific part of the generalized end times. And it refers to some events that are occurring at the very end of the end times. Uh, And so we need to see, well, which passage, in a passage, what's it talking about? Is it talking about this whole new covenant era that we're in? Or is it talking about a concluding piece of all of that? That concluding piece, you remember, a time given over to the times of tribulation, the times of the rapture of the church, the second coming of Christ, uh, the implementation of the kingdom, and so forth. So, in verse 7 here, in chapter 4, which is it referring to? Is it referring to that whole era from the time of the cross and resurrection onward? Is it referring to some events at the very end of that era? And the answer is that both are in reference here. Both. Uh, What he's challenging us to do in terms of the therefore is applicable no matter where we are in the therefore, even if we were there in those days and weeks and months following the resurrection, or where we are today, or if we happen to be in those events just preceding the rapture of the church or the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're equally applicable to us. He says, listen, no matter what part of this you're sitting in, it's a different era, and I'm calling for you to live in a different way in that era. There should be a sense of urgency about it. We should be living as believers with a sense of expectancy. Whether we're in that specific end or in the generalized end. Because the end is near for all of us. By the way, whether that refers to the prophetic end or the end of your life. I mean, does it really make a difference? I mean, the end, the end, in a sense. Uh... Remember, we're talking about squandered lives, living in the after, after we come to know Christ. Uh, Does it make a difference whether that after in my life happens to be in a few 
periods of time preceding the rapture of the church or something like that. Or that time, time going down the road and I'm in a car accident and dead. It's still the end time for me. And God says, that era that you're living in where I'm asking and calling for you to live strategically, to live productively, don't waste your life, would be equally true no matter what that period are. So he says, listen, live with that sense of expectancy. But don't live with a, a sense of expectancy about termination, about conclusion, in such a way that you do stupid things, like sell all you have and go sit on a hillside waiting for it to happen. There's no shortage in history of people doing stupid things in light of God's message. God says, that's not how I want you to live. Don't stand out there waiting for the cloud to depart, you know, open up. By the way, that was the loving rebuke, wasn't it, even in Acts chapter 1, in the ascension of Christ. Then the, the disciples are all just their jaws open, mouth gaping. They're all just looking up at the clouds. Can you imagine what that was like? All of them that had gathered at the ascension of the Lord, they're all just, and they kept their head up toward the clouds. Until God lovingly uh, sends from the angel and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? It's really kind of a comical piece. In the, not comical like a laugh, laugh, unimportant, but it, it says so much about us, doesn't it? <laughs> it was, those guys say, hey, come on, come on, come, wait, he's coming back. Get your, get your eyes off the cloud. Get it on Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Because <laughs> between now and when he comes, i got work for you to do. And then he goes on there and he says, just so wait for me. In Jerusalem now, until the Holy Spirit's given, then you're going to be my witnesses, and so on and so forth. Do you follow the way it unfolds? It's similar here. He says, listen, I want you to live with a sense of expectancy, but it's not going to show up by dumb things. It's going to show up in four ways. It's going to show up because you pray, because you love, because you show hospitality, because you use your gifts. And we're going to spend time, Lord willing, today and next week, uh, looking at those four things. Because they're the therefore of these verses. If, in fact, God's timetable of history can be trusted, and by the way, can be, all right, uh, then there's certain ways that we're supposed to be living. And the first of those ways has to do with prayer. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. An end times mindset should cause us to prioritize prayer in our life. Not prayer that says, oh Lord, save me from the end times. What kind of foolish prayer is that? You're already in the end times. I mean, that, that's not how you're supposed to be praying. Uh, you might say, in the midst of it, help me. Yes, but I mean, no matter how fervently you pray, you're not out of the end times, all right? That's, that's, that's our era. That's the place that God has placed us. He says, listen, prayer is the critical priority for my people in the end times. The general end times or the specific end times, it's the priority for them. Because prayer is absolutely critical to a meaningful relationship with the Heavenly Father. And here is what I call the discipleship equation. Prayerlessness equals anxiety and distant relationship from the Lord. Prayerfulness equals peace and closeness to the Father. Pretty straightforward equation. 
having some engineering background, I love equations. Uh, look at them, lay it out. Oh, yeah, A plus B, C, right, I got that. And God says, this is the equation. So, what's your current discipleship equation look like in your life? Because that's the therefore. What's the equation look like? Well, uh, maybe I tend toward prayerlessness. Ah, so you tend toward anxiety and distant relationship with the Father. Oh, yeah. Or I tend toward uh, prayerfulness. Oh, so you're finding peace <laughs> at times in your life and, and you're sensing the closeness of the Father. You see, they go together. <laughs> it Just one causes the other. If prayer is what God wants us to do, clearly he does here, uh, what does it mean to pray? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean coming before God with some memorized rhetoric. It doesn't mean ritual chants, memorized phrases. And it doesn't mean, in this context, formal gatherings with other people, although God commands in other places that we gather together as brothers and sisters to pray, which is why we do it on a Sunday morning. But that's not what he's saying here. That's not the focus in this case. Prayer, at its essence, simply means conversation with our Creator. Prayer simply means talking with God, listening to His voice. Communication, that's what it's about. Remember, earlier in my Christian life, being discipled uh, on the campuses, and uh, a staff member was talking to me about prayer, and he said, you know, what do you think of prayer? What, what is prayer? And I was coming up with these sort of religious pictures of, well, well this is what it is, and this, is, this kind of involves this, and you start off with these words, and you end with those words, and, and they said, and they said, you know, of course, that prayer just simply is talking with God. I mean, that, that's what it is. Now, when I say it's simply talking with God, it doesn't mean there's anything simple about prayer. It just simply means that's, that's what it is. The complicated part isn't understanding what it is. The complicated part is being consistent in it. And I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense. Felt a little foolish, actually, for a while, <laughs> the person. But over time, I'll never forget that, and I was so thankful for it, because you know what happened in my life as a result? I started praying on the way to class. You know, people walking past you. Oh, prayer's just talking to God. you got to help me here. i got to talk over here. We're, and, and pretty soon, prayer became that natural conversation with God in the course of a day. That is what he's talking about here. The natural conversation with God. By the way, you can't have a close relationship with one you never talk with. Now, in counseling, you share that on human relationships. You say, well, we're not talking together. Not a good sign. I mean, you can't, you're not going to have a solution to anything. You're certainly not going to have a good relationship if you can't talk together. You've got to talk. You've got to talk. The Bible gives us a lot of helpful directions on talking with someone. And certainly communication and relationships. But here's the principle behind it. You, you can't have a close relationship unless you're talking, communicating. The same thing holds true with God. You think there's another alternative 
to end up feeling close to God except talking to him? Oh, yeah, I, I kind of like the worship alternative. I get all goose pimply and I feel God's presence. You think that means you're close to God? The unsaved can feel goose pimples in a worship service. There's no alternative but communication for closeness. A sense of practicing the presence of the Lord, so to speak, and deepening in relationship with Him. The problem, obviously, which is why we encounter these verses, is that at times, believers in the after, remember the before and after sort of picture we're talking about here? Sometimes believers in the after think they're simply too busy to pray. Uh, hence, all prayer tends to get pushed aside a little bit. So they can get done with the more important things, you know, the really pressing things. And uh, then eventually, they can get to that prayer, whatever that prayer is. And, and God says... Uh, Child, yeah, uh, uh, prayer's actually the important thing. It's actually the important thing. Because all of the other important things, unless we're talking, and you're, in a sense, in understanding my relationship with you, you're going to screw up all the important things. Because you'll try to do them on your own strength. Uh, you need to be interacting with me. That's the important thing. Let's talk about it. I have a lot of time. Well, how long before you enter that class? There's the building over there. Let's see, you've got 45 seconds. Well, let's talk for 45 seconds at least. Let's bring it before the Lord. Let's talk about it. And then get settled into the other thing of your life. God says it's the important thing. In those living with an end times mentality... That's his point here. Those living with an end times mentality realize that fact. Oh, end times, not sell what I have, sit on the mountainside? No. If it's end times, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you a whole lot more than I've talked to you before. I need to make sure we're having conversation. Conversation. Now, there's a place for extended times of prayer with the Lord. But I think if we focus on that too much, we miss the point. Prayer is communication. The quick interaction, sharing, reminding ourselves he's there, reminding ourselves we need him, reminding ourselves, uh, Lord, you know what's going on in me, and all of that. You want the Lord to seem close? Make him close. Build in fellowship and relationship. Now he says two things here about prayer. He says here are two things that are needed, as he puts it, for the sake of your prayers. Uh, some of the translations say, so that you can pray. Oh, what are those things? Well, number one, he says in the ESV, you need to be self-controlled. And number two, you need to be sober-minded. Well, let's look at these together. He says, well, okay, if the prayer is going to become more and more a part of what I'm about, and this is what I need to do, uh, how do I do it so that my, for the sake of my prayers, what does it mean to be self-controlled? Well, the Greek word is sophron, which means literally to be in your right mind. 
not a distorted mind. You can't pray and have conversation with God if your mind's all messed up. You need to be in your right mind. This word saffron is, is the Greek word that we find in Mark chapter 5, verse 15. Let me read it to you. Jesus, by the way, the context of it, had just healed the demon-possessed man. Everybody else had given up on the person. A real problem in that region for that guy. And, and notice what it says. And they came to Jesus... And they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion of demons, sitting there, clothed, and here's Saffron, and in his right mind. The Greek word, Saffron. In his mind. Right mind. And they were afraid. I.e., at least we knew who he was before. Crazy, you know. He's in his right mind now. And this really scares us, you know. <laughs> He's thinking right. A self-controlled mind, saffron means a right mind, the ability to see the life as it is, to see the world as it is. That is saffron. He says you can't pray well without seeing the world like it is. You've got to see it straight. You've got you to understand it for what it is. Be in your right mind. See it as God sees it. And there's no way for that to happen without seeing it through his word, because that's how we know how God sees it. People say, well, I wonder how God would look at this. My response is always, well, let's see what he says about it in the word. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just guessing. Uh, you know, and usually our guesses are all screwed up. They, they don't tell us anything about God. What, does God say anything in a word about this issue? Then we know what God's word is. Commit ourselves to having a biblical way of thinking. Not conformed to the culture around us, as Romans 12.2 puts it, but instead being transformed by the renewing of our mind. I can't be in my right mind if I'm not here. The only avenue to have what's translated self-controlled, but it's the Greek word saffron, the only avenue to that, the only strategy for that, is to increasingly build this into my life. The more I read this, the more I see life right. The less I read this, the less I see right, life right. And somebody says, well, I don't know that I really have time, kind of, to be in the Word. I don't always understand it. And the right response to that, brothers and sisters, in love would be, okay, then you're going to be like the demoniac, not in your right mind. You're, you're committing yourself to a life pattern of distortion and confusion. You say, well, I don't want to be that way. Well, don't be that way get into his word, well, I don't want to do that. Well, then you're going to be that other way. <laughs> I mean, there's, not, there's not like another alternative. No number of years of therapy are going to change distorted thinking. Uh, I'm not saying by that there's no place for counseling. I'm just saying that alone doesn't do it. We need our minds renewed. All right? We need them transformed. This thing actually transforms us. So number one, we need to be self-controlled. Number two, he says, I want you to be Sober-minded. 
Sober-minded? Yeah. Greek word nepho, which literally means to be free of intoxicants. Uh, it's used not just in the setting of somebody's drinking, but it's used to describe an individual who is sober and aware, watchful, not dazed and disoriented by other things. Dazed and disoriented maybe by drink, dazed and disoriented by drugs, dazed and disoriented by focusing their happiness on the wrong things. There's all kinds of things that can daze you and disorient you in your life. So the word nepho in the Greek is a very broad word. It has a root, but it covers a wide variety of conditions. So the believer, God says to the believer, listen, in this after of your life, don't waste your life. It's, it's the end times, in fact. Be praying, but after you understand the prayer's conversation with me, understand you're not, you're not going to pray if your mind's not in your right mind. And you're not going to pray if you don't have sober-mindedness, if you're, if, if you're dazed and disoriented by other things. People say, well, yeah, but the things that I'm facing are legit for dazing and disorienting. I mean, you don't know my struggles. You don't know the family mess-ups that I face. You don't know uh, the job circumstances I'm in and... And they preoccupy my mind, and, I, and you don't know the screw-ups I've done in the past. And, uh, and God says, oh, all that just sort of intoxicates you, doesn't it? I mean, you, you get your mind all screwed up. He says, nepho. Be sober-minded. Earlier in First Peter, in the first chapter, if you remember way back when we were there, in verse 13, it says, Therefore, preparing your mind for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be sober-minded. It's already said. You know, Here he comes back to it. He says, you're not going to pray the way you should be praying if you're not sober-minded. Are you dazed and disoriented by things you're doing or focused on in your life? And then under the self-control... Are you allowing yourself to have another filter to make sense out of life other than God's truth? If you allow yourself another filter other than God's truth, you will not pray. And if you allow yourself to be dazed and disoriented by whatever it is that is starting to take hold of your thinking and sort of captivating you, you will also not pray. So, what will keep you praying? Uh, self-control and sober-mindedness? Right answer. <laughs> right answer. Right answer. You know, it's interesting to me, sometimes people say, so, you know, I really need God's help, I really need God's help, and I, and I, I would you pray for me? I need, I need to pray about this issue or that issue in my life, but the issue has dazed them. It's become the consuming preoccupation of their life. They're not in their right mind anymore. And there is intoxicated by the issue, by the circumstance, by their own failures, as if they'd been mainlining heroin. Everything like that ends up creating an impossible barrier. You cannot be interacting with God in the face of that. 
Oh, you might go through the motions, you'll go through the words or something, but I'm talking real communication. If I've got a lot on my mind, it doesn't matter if I sit down with my wife to, quote, talk. If my mind's still on all those things, even if there's talking going on, do you follow it? Uh, And that's what's happening here. He says, listen, uh, you need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. You're not going to talk with the Lord. And it's the end times. You desperately need to talk with the Lord. You need it. Well, I really hope to get through more than one of these this morning. Uh, But it seems like we're running out of time. Uh, That is all the further we got. Therefore. Always look for those words. Therefore. And the times is at hand. Job one, prioritize prayer. Understand what prayer is and what it isn't. And understand what's going to be needed in order to prioritize prayer. Does it make sense to you, brothers and sisters? Uh, It's got to be there. I have extended times of prayer with the Lord at times. In my case... The extended times have a whole lot more to do with me sort of figuratively or literally going for a long walk and batting something out with the Lord that either I'm reluctant to do or uh, I'm not understanding about something in my life. But brothers and sisters, the normal prayer of my life is conversation. Short, long, not going through much of the day without talking to the Lord, interacting with him. 15 seconds, 3 minutes, 10 minutes, hour after hour after hour. You want a closer relationship with the Lord? That's where you're going to get it. You can't have close relationship if you're not talking, if you're not interacting. And so I hope you recognize it's more than just saying, well, I'm going to be disciplined and go over a prayer list at this particular time in the course of a day. It's not that that's not a good thing to do. Don't misunderstand me. God commands us to do that, but that won't make you feel close to the Lord per se if you're not conversing with the Lord, which is the heart of what prayer is really about. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you... uh, So often your word is, can I say, uncomfortable to us, makes us unsettled, challenges us. But Lord, you make it that way because you love us. You you desire our growth and discipleship. You, You want us to discover what can be discovered no other way except in growing and deepening relationship with you. To be saved, yes, but to be growing as a disciple, enabled by your spirit, transformed by your word. So, Lord, do that work in us as we struggle through the therefores. And particularly in this day, help us to understand prayer. Help us, Lord to converse with you in natural, frequent ways. For we ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen.